Hi, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and you're watching Anything is Possible. Hi everyone, welcome to Anything is Possible series. I have a special guest today, a good friend of mine, a business partner, and uh, his name is Anthony Scaramucci. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a very famous hedge fund in Wall Street. All, 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 all very, very um, famous and also um, all the time um, commentator. And he, he's also had a, a quick stab at politics. And then today we're here to ask him about a few things. One is, to create more positivity, more positive vibes. Two is to overcome challenges. Three is we want to unite as one, a one world, and see how we can encourage and inspire younger people. So Anthony, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Stay, stay out of politics. That would be one of the ways to create more positivity, Patrick, but I've got a lot of other ways too. Okay, Anthony, thank, thank you for, for joining us. So I wanted to ask you a, a few things. So for example, you know, everyone's talking about COVID. Um, it's one of the greatest challenges, greatest you know, black swan events that is truly global. What advice would you give to you know, our younger audience? What should they be doing? Well, I think, I think the number one piece of advice is to have perspective. And so to, to look back throughout history, there's been many plagues, there's been pandemics. Uh, obviously, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 had similar consequence. And I think, frankly, this is the first global event of scale since World War II. So I just want you to imagine your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your younger person uh, living under the specter of a global war uh, where everybody's challenged at the same time. And so if you're feeling blue or you're feeling uh, down about where you are or you don't like the fact that you're trapped inside during a pandemic, put it in perspective. Recognize that this has happened before. It will likely happen again. Uh, and I have always found, Patrick, and you and I have discussed this offline, I've, I've found if I come from a attitude of gratitude, if I get up in the morning and I think about all the things that are going well for me in my life, whether it's my health, thank God, at least for now, or my family members, or things that are going well in terms of uh, my relationships. Uh, you can wake up inspired every single day, no matter what the negative externalities are around you. And so I would tell people, attitude is gratitude and put things in perspective. Uh, you, 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 the world has been here before. We'll get out of this. We'll be in a much normal and better place for everybody. That's great advice, Anthony. Now, as you know, I'm a very proud Chinese. Um, my Chinese heritage has, you know, it, it has significant influence on values of mine, how I conduct myself. But at the same time, as you know, I grew up in the UK and Europe. Um, when we were in Davos last time, you know, we had a great time together, mixing with a lot of global citizens. You're a true patriot. You love your country. I know that. And, you know, I also hear very good stories about you and your mother and your family. So, you know, obviously everyone knows that you have an Italian heritage. How has that Italian blood DNA of yours um, affected you as who you are and how you conduct business and as a person? Well, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be overly general, but I think one of the beautiful 
parts of the Chinese culture is the commitment to family and the respect for elders. And I think you would find that uh, in Italy as well. And so, you know, my grandparents got here in the 1920s. Uh, they were very humble. Uh, there was discrimination. There were signs and storefronts that said, no Italians need apply. My grandmother started as a maid. My grandfather was a mason, you know, where he was putting uh, walls together, building foundations and so forth. Uh, on my dad's side, uh, when they came in from uh, Italy, they went to northeastern Pennsylvania. Actually, the birthplace of Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton is where my dad was born uh, in a small town, the Wilkesbury Scranton area. And my grandfather was a coal miner. And so these were indigent jobs, uh, but there was a very close connectivity to family. And, uh, you know, when I think about the abundance that I've been able to create for my family as a direct result of living a good part of the American dream, I often am anchored back to those experiences as a young kid, uh, you know, grew up in a blue collar family in a blue collar house. Nobody was educated, Patrick. And so, uh, but there was a deep desire by those ancestors of mine to get people like myself educated. And so, I think uh, I'm very I'm very blessed that way. But when you talk about being a citizen of the world, I, I just want to tell this quick story. You know, I grew up very very sheltered, and so there were Italians, African Americans, and Irish, and Jewish Americans in my neighborhood. But beyond that, I was very very sheltered, and I did not travel the world as a younger person. And my my first trip to Europe, I was. Uh, uh, I was accepted to the London School of Economics to do a semester over there. And that was basically the first time I got an experience uh, to be outside of the United States. And so what I have found is that my rite of passage has been an eye-opening in the sense that the more places I go, the more people I meet, I am comforted by our common humanity. I'm comforted by our humanness and the values that we all have. Sure, there are mean and rough people on planet Earth. I'm not a Pollyannish person. I'm a very realistic person. But by and large, uh, people are good and people want the right things for their family. They want the right things for their community and they want the right things for their respective countries. I think what sometimes happens in the, the game of politics is we start to create these uh, competitive structures where, you know, my country is better than your country or my system is better than your system. And I can only editorialize about that. I can only give you my reflection on my 56 years on planet earth. And I've, I've visited probably 70 countries, including war-torn countries like Afghanistan and Iraq on troop support missions. And what I would say is that we have so much more in common than what separates us. And what I would say is that when you study history, we have to be very, very careful of the specter and dangers of nationalism. We have to be very, very careful about uh, disuniting at a time, frankly, as you just said, where we need to unify. And I think we have to step back for a second and understand how important and how closely knit we all are now in the world. And so, you know, casting aspersions, blaming each other, uh, stereotyping each other, or denouncing one way of life versus another way of life or being righteous about it, I think is something we have to try to avoid. And so I try to do that with my children, my, my community, my business. 
And I think people, the more they think about it from that point of view, there's a tremendous amount of positivity in that too. You get a lot of health benefits, frankly, uh, from being positive and thinking about other people in a positive way. Absolutely. Totally agree with you, Anthony. Now, let's move on to um, something where some of our younger audience might get some good guidance and advice from you. So, like you, I also studied law and very similar to yourself, um, we sort of did it for the wrong reasons. And interestingly enough, I know from you know, some conversations from you and also from some of the interviews I've seen online for yourself, you in a way completed your Harvard Law School education because of your family, predominantly because of your love for your mother. Can you, no tell, us, can you tell us a little bit about that story and what lessons you learned from that, especially for our younger, younger viewers? Oh. Well, here's what I would say to somebody that's younger listening, you know, break up your life into a couple of different parts, you know, meaning if you're, if you're, you know, doing well in school, well, you succeeded at the first third of your life. And then you have another third of your life, which is going to be as a professional and trying to grow your business. And then you have the last third of your life as an elder statesman or elder stateswoman, where you're trying to provide guidance and temperance and substance to the people around you. And so in the first third of my life, you know, my family, I didn't grow up poor. I would never dishonor my dad's work ethic by telling you, Patrick, or anybody that I grew up poor, but we grew up with a tight budget. We were a middle-class family. My dad was an hourly worker. And if his hours got cut, well, guess what? Our allowances and things we were allowed to have in the house got cut. And if his hours were expanded, well, then in came the Schwinn bicycle. And so so for me, um, what I try to take from those experiences in my life is moderation and safety. I never try to live above my means. So now I'm going to law school because I thought it represented a floor of security. Um, I was reading in Time magazine in 1985 that New York Wall Street lawyers, which I didn't know anything about, we're making $65,000 a year, Patrick. And I was like, oh my God, my dad's like making $33,000 a year. You mean I could come out of law school at age 25 and my first year I could make double what my dad makes? And I was like, oh my God, I've got to immediately go to law school. And that was my decision tree. It wasn't like well thought out. It wasn't like I had a, a group of mentors that sat around with me and helped me think about my career. So now I'm going to law school and I ended up going to law school for lots of the wrong reasons, for security, because I thought it was the right thing to do. I get there, and I don't like it. And uh, not that Harvard Law School is anything not to like, frankly, but I just didn't think it was for me. It didn't fit the calling I felt inside of myself. So I drove home for uh, uh, Thanksgiving, and I sat at the dinner table with my parents, and I said, listen, I want to drop out of law school take a semester off, and I'm going to apply to the Harvard Business School. You know, I, I thought my mother was going to commit like Harry Carrier. I mean, she was just like in an apocalyptic meltdown. And so I don't know what a Chinese mother is like. You can comment about Chinese mothers. But I could tell you, Italian mothers, when you're telling them you're leaving Harvard Law School, you know, it, it is like at a moonstruck. If you ever saw that comedy, that Italian comedy. So I said, okay, mom, forget it. I don't want to hear it. I'll finish law school. So I finished law school, and then this is an embarrassing part of my 
life story, but I don't mind telling it to young people because it's also a story of resilience. So I now come out of law school. I got this fancy pants job at Goldman Sachs. And so I've got to take the bar exam because my parents are insistent that I take it. But, you know, I'm water skiing in Manhasset Bay. I'm hanging out with my friends. I study for the bar exam for three days. Well, I can tell everybody on this Zoom, you can't study for the New York State bar exam for three days. And so I failed it. This is a totally true story. I failed it by one multiple choice point. I got a 65.6. New York State does not round up. I needed a 66 to pass it. So it was a mortifyingly embarrassing moment in my life. And so there's a lot of lessons in this thing. You have to do what you love in life. If you don't do what you love or you're doing what your parents want you to do, or uh, it's not your vision or your calling, you're going to be missing something. You're not going to feel alive every single morning. You're not going to feel like you're tap dancing to work. I eventually went on to pass the bar exam to satisfy my mother, Patrick, but trust me, it was, a, it was a grueling experience. And I think that the point you would make, you went to law school for the wrong reasons. So did I. But I think the happy end of the story, at least for me, is upon reflection, it was a pretty amazing education. And I, I learned a lot about how to read contracts, how to analyze uh, decisions. Trial advocacy was great for public relations and public speaking. And so by and large, uh, I'm glad I finished it. So you're not always right when you're 25 or 22 or 21, you know, open your eyes and ears and listen to people that may have more experience than you that are trying to impart some wisdom. Thank you, Anthony. That's a you know, great story. Interesting enough, I think that, you know, you have what it takes to become a Navy SEAL because I read somewhere, <laughs> no, it's, it's a true story. Now, the Navy SEALs basically talk about it's not the strongest guy, the fittest guy, the smartest guy. It's actually the guys who might not be, I'm not saying you're out of shape by the way, but the guys who become Navy SEALs are the guys who have inner desire to get past the finish line, regardless of whether they like it or not. Well, that's a, that's a huge compliment, by the way. So I'll say thank you to that. You know, Admiral McRaven, who's the longest serving Navy SEAL, is a personal friend of mine. And uh, he said something to me once that I said, okay, that's a nice comment. I had to say thank you. He said, you know, you fight like a SEAL. I thought it was a big compliment. And I think he meant, you know, in a, whether it's a verbal fight or it's a passion or love of country or you know, just love of people, uh, I'm willing to take a stand and I'm willing to take a principle-based stand. Uh, but what I would say to younger people, as it relates to your character, which is something as the quality of Navy SEALs, you're always developing and you're always evolving your character. So if you've made a mistake or you disappointed a friend or you got out of a relationship inappropriately or you you didn't handle yourself properly don't let it hang on you like a millstone on your neck take the millstone off learn to forgive yourself and learn to progress i think that is the number one thing the seals do talk about that it's about evolving and it's about changing for the better and so you have to continue to idealize what you'd like to be in life and try that every single day. And that's what the SEALs would tell you. They say, Patrick, do you know how to eat an elephant? The SEALs say one bite at a time, Patrick. It's just one bite at a time. Uh, and we can work on ourselves every day, one bite at a time. Anthony, let's move on to entrepreneurship. So I also read somewhere that, you know, you knew from an early age, I think from the age of 11, you, want, you always knew that you wanted to own your own business. 
whatever the business is, you didn't know at the time, right? So, and obviously you went on to leave, you know, a high paid job in Goldman, and then you went on to set up Skybridge Capital, you know, a number of years ago into one of the um, greatest hedge funds on Wall Street. So what, you know, how and why and what made you make that plunge from taking the risk to becoming an entrepreneur and worrying about pressures of paying the rent, staff, you know, investors and, and so on? Well, listen, I mean, it's not for everybody, but I, but I will tell you, I'm a very big believer that something happens to you in your formative years of life. And, it, and, and it's probably like age 11 to 17. Uh, Byron Ween, uh, who is a legendary investor, he's now working at Blackstone, but he spent 40 years at Morgan Stanley, uh, once gave a presentation that really left an impression on me. He said, you know, something happens to you age 11 to 17, and then you start idealizing your adult life. And there's something that you're doing during that period of your life that you want to continue to do as an adult. And that's where you sort of find your vocation or your calling. And so for me, my dad came home. It was probably the mid seventies. We were in a recession in the United States and his hours got cut and there was some financial anxiety in the house. And my father said something to me in passing. He's like, you know, someday you're going to go to college and you're going to start your own business so that you could be the boss. And you won't have these vagaries that are outside of your control, you know, related to what was happening to him with his wages. And so what I did was I went out and got a paper route. And so at age 11, I was, uh, I was hawking uh, Long Island Newsday, which is the local paper out here on Long Island. And I was building my paper route and I was making about $35 a week. I was giving $20 to my parents and putting $15 in my pocket. And I was hustling the paper route and I really liked it. I was like meeting people, growing the paper route. And I said, you know, someday I'm going to have my own business, just like the way this paper route is, because I can control elements of my own destiny. And the harder I work, the more I'm going to get paid, et cetera. But here's the things I didn't know at that age, Patrick. I didn't know how hard it was. I didn't know that uh, you're never your own boss. You know this because you're an entrepreneur. There are entrepreneurs listening. You're never your own boss because you have clients, you know, so of course your clients are ultimately your boss, whether you're Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Bill Gates at Microsoft, Michael Dell at Dell Computer, you know, you're beholden to a series of people. Moreover, if you're running the company properly, you have to put yourself in a servant leader position where, you know, you got you, you and I've had this conversation. Nobody works for me. People work with me and we try to make it a business of collaborating as opposed to this autocratic structure, which sometimes you lose a lot of the creativity in an autocratic structure in business. And so I, I, I tell people, people work with me, they don't work for me, uh, and I have a lot of bosses. And some of those bosses happen to be my employees where sometimes they ask me to do things and I have to drop one thing and go help them on something else. And so it, it was an evolutionary process. But if you wanna be an entrepreneur, uh, Frederick W. Smith at FedEx said two great things, and he was the founder of FedEx, this great idea, and he's been running FedEx for 40 plus years, and he's become a friend uh, as a result of uh, lots of different inter unique interactions with him, but he said two things that I'll share with everybody. Number one, if he knew how hard it was to start FedEx, he would have never started FedEx because he couldn't believe how hard it was to get it together, okay? But what drove him 
was the love of that adventure. It wasn't necessarily the outcome or the potential riches. It was, okay, I have a series of problems and I've got a business that's starting from nothing with a business plan and I'm going to turn it into one of the largest companies in the United States, if not the world, part of the S&P 500. How am I going to do this? And it was those challenges that excited him. And then the second thing he said, which I found out was a little bit more cliche, he said that an entrepreneur is somebody that jumps off a cliff and then tries to build the airplane as they're descending to the ground. And when you think about those two ideas, uh, it's very, very tough to be an entrepreneur. But if it's in your soul, if it's in your DNA, uh, it's something that will keep you forever young. And, and so I recommend it to people that want to do it. But the flip side is I had a roommate uh, at Harvard Law School, phenomenal guy. Uh, he was at uh, CS First Boston. And I said, this guy would be perfect as a Goldman Sachs partner. He loves corporate structure. He loves marketing a, a storied brand. And he would be a great investment banker for Goldman. I helped recruit him over to Goldman Sachs. He went on and had a 25-year career at Goldman Sachs. And he wasn't worried like you and I are about the technology, the, 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 the payroll, keeping track of everything. But he did a phenomenal job for them. And it was very rewarding. So find your calling. Uh, be comfortable with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Don't be self-conscious about your trials and tribulations or your successes and failures and a lot of good things will happen. Anthony, so, you know, we, you and I definitely, but in fact, my view is everyone's a salesman or sales lady, salesperson. Um, yeah. What's the best way, in your opinion, to authentically sell without overselling? Well... I don't want to oversimplify that, but I think that there is a couple of things that come to mind. To me, I think the process of selling is helping other people. And if you think about the process of selling as helping yourself, you're going to get into danger because what ends up happening is you're searching for a lots of transactions and you're making things quid pro quo. Uh, and I think that that potentially sets you up for danger. So for me, I try to think of selling as helping other people. And so uh, I like to be nonlinear in my relationships. So what I mean by that is I go out and I try to help as many people as possible with as many different things as possible. And I'm betting on the good karma of that, that a lot of that will be reciprocated back to me. Secondary thing I would say about selling, you know, we have a, a product. It could be ourselves. It could be our business. We're out there selling it. Uh, how do you handle the word no? is a very big deal because what happens, particularly for younger people, you hear the word no, and it's like an attack on your self-worth. You know, if you're English, I don't know what the Chinese word is for no, but if you're, if you're, if you're English or American, and you hear the word no, it's arguably one of the most powerful words in the word, world. It's only one syllable and two characters, but there it is. Your parents told you that. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't jump out of the crib. No, no, no. Your, your, your girlfriends told you that when you were in middle school, you were trying to ask them out on a date, they said no. And so it freezes you as a salesperson. And so what I tell younger people is that no spelled backwards is on. You have to turn yourself on when somebody says no, meaning you don't have to take it personally. You say, okay, geez, maybe my product is not right for you at this time. But you know, maybe you have a friend that you could introduce me to that may like this product. Or you know what? Not the right product for you today, but it may be the right product for you for in three years. Let's continue our dialogue. Don't overreact to the word no. 
And then the last thing I would tell people about sales is that it's a lot of it has to do with statistics. And so I'm going to use a baseball example, forgive me, uh, but I want to use it because I think it's very relevant here. If you're in American baseball and you're able to hit the pitcher and create a hit, if you go three for 10, you're in the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's an amazing statistic in baseball. But I want you to think about selling for a second. Um, a person could be a phenomenal salesperson and they go two for 10, Patrick. Okay. And I could be, let's say, less than phenomenal and I go 10 for a thousand. I go 10 for a thousand. The other person went two for 10. I am five times the salesperson of the other person. Meaning, even though my success rate is so low, my persistence, my energy, my drive, my compassion and passion to do the business, I created five sales for a thousand. The percentage is very low, but on an absolute basis, it's better than the person that goes two for 10. And so, so the point I'm making is one of the most wonderful things about sales is that you are unending uh, amount of at-bats. You don't have to go three for 10. You could go five for a thousand and you get yourself into the Hall of Fame. And you need to think about that and not take personally rejection. And if you, if you do that in your life, I'm telling you, it's very positive. It'll work out very well. Thank you, Anthony. Let's turn on to the next question. Then we're gonna get some tougher questions now. So let's move on to your baby, Skybridge. Um, obviously for 2020, quarter one, because of COVID and various reasons, um, Skybridge has you know, uh, faced a lot of challenges from you know the no, you could, no, no, we got killed no no you, I, look I'm, I'm a very upfront person no, our no, performance I... our performance stunk in 2001 i'm sorry 2020's first quarter our, so, our, in fact it was our our month of march was the worst month that i've had as an investment professional but okay but go ahead yeah so one thing i i really respect you and admire you not just as a business person but as a friend is you're brutally honest and that's something that is quite, you know, in my opinion, very refreshing because most people who are, you know, high profile tend to try not to overshow, you know, their hand. The question is not really on the financial side of, in terms of how you rescued it, what you did and so on. I think what we wanted to share with the audience is more that experience was a major setback in your business and your career. What's the kind? Uh, what, what do you have to do? How do you become resilient, tenacious to deal with the people, your clients, and so on? I mean, how do you go about this? Well, I mean, I would say I would say a couple of things. I would say you know the the, the first thing that I would say is be honest. You know, in in a crisis, particularly when you have clients, uh, crisis communication requires that brutal honesty that we're discussing. Crisis communication requires literally telling people the good and the bad news. You know, there's a great book written by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile about Winston Churchill and the onset of the Blitzkrieg. And, you know, when I read the book and I compare it to some of the political leadership now, it's like, okay, it's very compelling. He told the British people, we're in for a rough ride here. You know, we've got, uh, we're undersupplied as it relates to our aircraft. We're undersupplied as it relates to our military material, and we've got to train our army a lot better than it's trained right now. And we're about to be attacked by Nazi Germany and a result of which we're going to be under siege. And yet he said it in this very compelling and very compassionate way. And again, patriotic way, 
And, and if you read the words today and, you, and you, you put them in that setting, it was very inspiring. But what I loved about that level of leadership, you talk about directness, it was authentic in terms of its honesty. You know, the, the people knew they were in trouble, Patrick. It wasn't like you could get to the microphone and say, hey, everything's fine. The Nazi Germany, they're just all going to float away. You know, or when the, when the weather gets warm, they're going to disappear. You know, is this sort of nonsense? You can't really talk like that. You've got to you got to be honest with people and you got to tell them exactly what's going on because once they get from you that you're being honest with them and you can explain either what went wrong in the business or why you thought things went wrong and then you're offering up a solution as to how you're going to make things better, uh, I think that can be very uh, inspiring. I think that can provide people with a lot of confidence. But here's another thing, and this is an unspoken thing, but I'm going to say it. You have to be prepared for losses. You have to be prepared in your life for setbacks. You can't sit there and pretend that your life is going to go up on a 45-degree angle. Nobody's life does that. And your friend at a cocktail party that's pretending that he's got the perfect life with the perfect life story and everything's going well for him, you know, that's the person in the room that's lying. And so I think it's very important for people to see you with your trials and tribulations and to see that you can work them out. This will be the ninth financial crisis that I have personally experienced in my 32 year professional career, ninth financial crisis. And listen, they all come in different sizes and shapes, but let me tell you something about them. Persistence, authenticity, honesty, uh, adaptation, all of these things, okay, come to bear in a crisis. And if you apply them, guess what? You get through the crisis and you often, in fact, every time that I can think of, you emerge stronger from the crisis. Absolutely. So, Anthony, moving on to the next you know, topic, it's uh, another baby of yours, which is uh, SALT, which was yeah. born out of another crisis, 2008 financial crisis. So 2008, 9, 10, I think that's when companies like Uber, Airbnb, Instagram, all of these companies didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago. And SALT was the same during this crisis. I understand that you told me before was one, you didn't have sufficient funds in the bank. Um, you didn't have the full support of your peers within the company to do so, but you went ahead and did it anyway. So tell us why and how and how it's become such a success. I could have drawn from my personal savings and put it into, into the company, but I think I was making the point that if you just looked at our company, we were hobbled by the 2008 crisis. We were weakened. We were down 20%. People were redeeming. That's often what happens. It's great irony to that. At exactly the time that they should be buying, they are selling. And that's unfortunate. That happens in human behavior and the psychology of money. But you know, it's a great irony. We went down 20% and then we went up 60% over the next 40 months. If they had just stayed, it would have been fine. I tried to tell people that, but uh, some people listened, some people didn't. But at the bottom of the crisis in March of 2009, when the S&P 500 was at the auspicious number 666 and the Dow was at 6,500, I said, we should have a conference in Las Vegas. And people are like, what are you talking about? nobody's going to Las Vegas. All of the big banks have shut down. President Obama said, now's not the time to go to Las Vegas. And I said, well, you know what? That's precisely the reason why it is the time. We can buy these hotel rooms on the cheap. Uh, the speakers bureaus are offering low prices for exceptional speakers. 
we can we can call either the bottom of the market or it'll be our going away party like the Titanic as we take Skybridge out of business. But one or the other, we're going to have a convention. We're going to have a conference in Las Vegas. And so the word salt came from Skybridge Alternatives. Uh, when I got uh, George W. Bush there, President Bush, we were in the green room before I went up on stage to interview him. And he said, uh, he said, Anthony, is, is this the strategic arms limitation talks? And I laughed. I said, well, Mr. President, there's a lot of young people in this room. They don't know what the strategic arms limitation talks are. But SALT stood for Skybridge Alternatives. And I, I said it was alternative investments, but also alternative thinking. And so over the last 11 years, it's really grown into a pretty interesting franchise. We've had two American presidents, uh, six secretaries of state, four Department of Defense officials, four British prime ministers. We've had a very eclectic mix of people. We did it in Singapore. Uh, we had uh, members of the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund there. We had uh, members of some of the Chinese investment banks. I think CICC came uh, when we did it in Singapore a couple of years. Uh, I did it once up in Tokyo. I brought Dr. Bernanke with me to Tokyo. Um, and obviously we, we did it most recently in Abu Dhabi uh, in this sort of the Middle East, North African region of the world, uh, which was fabulously successful. Unfortunately, that was in December, sort of pre-pandemic. Uh, and so now we had to postpone our, our conference or cancel it effectively for May, which was going to be in Las Vegas again. But I suspect when we get the conference going again, when things settle down and it's not a health or safety risk to have a conference, I would love to do one in China, as you know, and I would love to do one in New York, which uh, I'd like to be in solidarity with this great city that helped me uh, make my way in life. Uh, and so we'll We'll switch things up. We'll make it very exciting. Uh, but for me, it's a place where we can meet new people and learn from each other. Uh, and so you get the benefit of finding people that you can do more business with, finding people that you can learn from. And Patrick, you and I have gotten to know each other now. You know, I'm always in it for a good time. So I want people to learn from each other, potentially grow each other's businesses, but let's have a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to hopefully being in your great uh, hometown or another beautiful city in China at some point to host an event like this. Thank you, Anthony. So, you know, as you know, both of us share the same vision. One is, you know, we, we, we only work with people we like and we work with like-minded people. But as you said correctly, we want to have fun along the way. Now, Salt China is a great idea. We've been talking about it and all the different ideas, but let's move on to something which is quite dear to both of our hearts. So we're both very patriotic about our respective nations. Now, the US and China are probably facing one of the most difficult times in modern history and probably will get worse. And as we've spoken a number of times, including with Mark Cuban, you know, I believe that if both the US and China were to join forces, you know, every country, we all need US, we all need China, China needs US, US needs China. The only way for the world to be prosperous and peaceful is that we both work together and not be at loggerheads. How do you think both countries should be dealing with the you know, current situation and the you know, medium and long term? Well, listen, it's, 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 a, it's a fabulous question. I don't, I don't want to be too long-winded about it, yeah. uh, but I would encourage everybody listening to read Destined for War, which was written by Dean Graham Allison. Uh, uh, President Xi actually had, I think, a copy of the book when he when he met with uh, President Trump in April 
of 2017 at Mar-a-Lago. And I think that the, the book really describes a rising superpower, sometimes threatens the existing superpower. And as Graham Allison said in the book, there's something called the Thucydides trap, where uh, uh, Sparta felt threatened by Athens on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Uh, they could have been great trading partners. They could have helped each other and become more prosperous as two city-states, but one felt threatened by the other and decided to attack the other. And of course, the propaganda at the time was that it was going to be a, uh, a very short war. Uh, but of course, that war lasted 30 years. And you could read the book, The Peloponnesian War, to learn about the destruction that took place in both of their economies and both of their city-states. And so Graham Allison's cautionary tale is that over 2,000 years, there's been 16 episodic events where a rising superpower threatens the existing power structure. Uh, on 12 of the 16 events, unfortunately, it's led to some level of war. Uh, but how do you avoid the war? Well, in the four cases where the war was avoided, there was cultural awareness. There was cultural understanding. There was a diminution in xenophobia. There was a respect for the different systems, whether it was different religious teachings, different cultural teachings, Western versus Eastern philosophy, uh, different systems. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is a different system from the American uh, two-party system. Uh, in some ways, actually, they're more similar than people would think. In other ways, they are quite different. Uh, but how do you respect each other's systems without becoming overly righteous or overly na nationalistic or overly threatened. And I think something that you and I know, and this is an observation that I believe with my heart and soul, that the world is big enough for everyone. And that the, there are, you know, that cliche, there are many fish in the sea. So I don't view people as my competitors. I view each person that's in my business line, if you will, as an opportunity to cooperate which is why our conferences, even though it's sponsored by us and we stage it, it's open to the entire community. And I think we have to think about that as it relates to our political systems. And so um, I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm optimistic because uh, when this period of heatedness and this period of bellicosity of rhetoric dies off, I think that there will be a rise of very, very smart people, statesmen and women, on both sides that look at the situation and say, okay, wait a minute, we're going to be so much happier and so much better if we can figure out a way to peacefully coexist, allow for China to peacefully rise, allow for its population to become more affluent and more prosperous without us being a threat to each other. And, and, and so you'll say, well, that's Pollyannish, of course, you know, uh, the U.S. is never going to move the fleet and the, the Chinese are going to fight with the U.S. over different things related to the Southeast Asia. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. You, you know, you don't have a perfect relationship with your spouse. You don't have a perfect relationship with your business partner. You certainly don't have a perfect relationship with your brother or sister. I mean, we all have our trials and tribulations. But if we can start out with a commonality that uh, an unconditional commonality, I would say, you know, an unconditional commonality that we have to work this out for the betterment of man and womankind, for the betterment of the globe, we have to work this out. You know, when, when you're with your kids, you love them unconditional. When you're with your spouse, sometimes you can love the spouse conditionally. You know, you put conditions on each other. 
But I think this is a relationship where we have to stipulate that there's an unconditional nature to this relationship that we have to work it out. You know, it's, it's almost that sort of a familiar relationship, if you will, Patrick. Uh, and so what we have to do is we have to be politically active in the United States. And we have to, you know, I can't speak to your system. You know your system better than mine. But we have to teach people and we have to encourage people to have that sort of a global vision. And if they do, I think it will lead to more peace and more prosperity for, for, for all nations. And, you know, listen, I, I'm partial to the United States because I grew up here. As you said, I'm a patriot. I know a peaceful coexisting relationship with China is very, very good for the citizens of the United States. And so that's why I'm so outspoken about it. For the world, not the US. Yeah, yeah, of course, for the world as well. But I'm saying that, you know, if you're thinking about your own citizens, you're like, this is great for our country. I agree for the world, but I'm just taking it back sure. to the United 100%. States because unfortunately, as in China and as in every country, Patrick, there is some centrism. you know what I mean? There's Chinese-centric behavior, American-centric behavior. You and I both know that it's great for the world, but I also have to impress upon the people that are only thinking about their respective nations that it's also good for their respective nations, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So, Anthony, let's move on to similar kind of topic. So, recently in the news, uh, in fact, like, you know, 24 to 48 hours ago, we've seen Kanye West, or AKA Ye, and Brock Pierce, our, our mutual friend, uh, yeah. a good friend of ours. I mean, what kind of leader does the US need right now in such a time of, you know, crisis, adversity, yeah. uh, and so on? I mean, what kind of leader do you guys need to unite oh, your country? I mean, listen, I, mean, I mean, I think that's the spirit of America that anybody can run for president in America. You, know, you have to be above the age of 35 and born in the US. Those are the two qualifications. And it's up for the, the American people to decide. I think one of the things about America, which you know, which is worth exploring, is it's a very tight duopoly at the top. And in 1992, 28 short years ago, Ross Perot, an American entrepreneur and billionaire, threatened that duopoly. He got 19.9% of the vote. Some people say that he cost George Herbert Walker Bush the election and allowed for President Clinton to become president. I'm, I'm not going to debate that. I don't know if he did or he didn't. But what he did do is he threatened that duopoly. And so those uh, Republicans and those Democrats over the last generation have moved closer to each other to protect that duopoly. And so they've made it very hard for people to run as third party candidates, whether it's our friend Brock or Kanye West is somebody that I don't know. But there are certain deadlines which have already passed in certain states. And there'll be certain court restrictions potentially, or there'll be lawsuits filed to see if those two candidates that you just mentioned can even get on the ballot in those states. And then they have certain criteria where they have to sign up enough petitions and so forth. So, so I don't know if their campaigns will be successful or not. I don't want to rule out anybody. Certainly somebody like Brock Pierce is a dynamic entrepreneur and anything's possible is the name of the show. And so anything's possible. But here, here's what I would say if uh, you and I were on the search committee for the American president, let's say that we were on the publicly traded board and we were going to pick the CEO to oversee the American government and to help the American culture and to bind the wounds in the American culture, as somebody like Abraham Lincoln would have said. I think we need somebody that believes in the first name of the country, united. We need somebody that's willing to take political risks to be transformative 
or a post-party sort of executive, a post-party leader, he or she. And I think it's somebody that has to look at the continuum of American history and not strain out the bad parts, but to look at the continuum of American history, because it's all out there front and center, and acknowledge what went right and acknowledge what went wrong and see if we can try. And again, I say try because it's going to take a while to heal the divisions, try to eliminate some of the institutionalized racism, try to bring the country together as opposed to splitting the country into two very harsh argumentative tribes that are going to blast each other on cable news. And so here's the thing I would say. And, and I think we learn from each culture. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are things about the American culture that the Chinese government has adopted and they put into practice, and hopefully some of that's been successful. Uh, but there are things actually from the Chinese government that the Americans can learn. And, and one of them is planning, long-term planning. You know, if you look at China 2049 as an example, you go on the website, you look at, you know, what China wants to do and where they want to be in terms of their infrastructure, education, urbanization and what the long-term goals are for China, that 100th anniversary of the revolution, uh, there is a compelling statement there about planning. Now, will all of that happen? You and I are entrepreneurs. We know when, you, you know, when you're planning, everything changes. As Mike Tyson said, once you get punched in the face, but by having the plan, you're setting a course, you're setting a direction for people. And I would submit to you that the Americans need to do that more. We need to have more long-term planning related to education, more long-term planning related to infrastructure. I think the last thing I would say, but not to overly simplify it, uh, we need less thermometers in America and more thermostats. Now, let me see if I can explain this to you. A thermometer takes the temperature. It says, oh, wow, it's hot out here. Let me offer up hot and negative rhetoric. Or it's cold out here. Let me offer up cold rhetoric. You know, my, my, my point being is they're just taking a finger and sizing what the temperature is and then as a leader, they're reacting to the temperature. That's a thermometer. But a thermostat is like, okay, it's, you know, 30 degrees Celsius. I've got to get the room down to 22 degrees Celsius. And they punch in the coordinates. And then they go out and they speak to the American people about how we have to move in that direction. And they speak uh, with the right cultural application so that it sounds empathetic and it sounds healing. And it starts to bind people. And then people re remember what I said to you when I first got started. I was a sheltered young kid in a blue-collar Italian-American family when I exploded out of that house and circled the globe six or seven times and visited 70 countries. My reaction to the world is, wow, we are very similar. Let's knock it off. Let's try to get together. I think we need a leader like that in the United States, and that's more of a thermostat, Patrick, than a thermometer. Very well said, Anthony. So let's move on to about your White House experience. Obviously, you know, it's very well known that you were the um, communications director. Um, yeah. You know, one of my favorite Bond movies is you know, Never Say Never Again. So, <laughs> you know, never say never or, you know, anything is possible. What do you mean about returning? I mean, like, uh, will, you, will you go back into politics? When I go back into politics. So, you know, listen, I'm not a politician, so I learned a lot. I mean, that was like, 11, I mean, I got fired unceremoniously. Uh, it was a lot of media fanfare around my firing. The late night talk show comedians had a field day with the whole thing. 
And I think that there's a learning lesson in that too. It's about resiliency. You know, I made a mistake in the White House. I never blamed President Trump for my firing or General Kelly. In fact, if anything, people said to me, well, what happened? I made a mistake. I talked to a reporter I trusted. He printed a off-color uh, remark, which I thought was funny, but wasn't really for public consumption. Uh, it was embarrassing to the president. I got fired. I deserve to be fired. So I tell young people, be accountable for your mistakes. Secondarily, I don't walk around with a millstone on my neck or kicking myself in the pants in the morning saying, wow, I made a mistake in the White House. I got myself fired. If you're an entrepreneur listening, you know you have to forgive yourself immediately and you have to move on uh, and you have to focus your life on the future. Not that you're not learning from the past and making adaptation, but you got to go forward in life. And so for me, I have done that and I always have a good sense of humor about it. I invited General Kelly to speak at the SALT conference. He fired me in July of 2017. Lo and behold, him and I have become very close personal friends and we're actually talking to, to each other on Father's Day. Uh, and he's been to two other events of mine. He hosted a SALT talk with me virtually. And then I took him to Abu Dhabi uh, last winter. So the point being, uh, you know, anything can happen in life. Anything is possible. Like your show says, John Kelly and I are very good friends today. So I'm not going to rule anything out. I'm not, the I'm not a politician that would say, oh, never going to do this or never going to do that. And then lo and behold, I do that. I'm just never going to rule it out because I have an interest. I have a great love for the country. Um, when I had the opportunity to serve the country, I got a little blinded by that. Uh, I think I let my ego do the talking for me. I would caution young people. Uh, sometimes uh, when your ego is engaged, your emotions are going up, Patrick, but your intelligence is going down. And you, you want to try to keep your ego removed from situations. It'll make you less emotional, but allow you to hit the target more squarely. Uh, but sure, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in serving the public again. I'm interested in potentially finding a role for myself. But what I'm more interested in right now is digging Skybridge out of the hole that we got put into as a result of the pandemic. I don't want to sound overconfident about that, but listen, we got great relationships around the world uh, and we're growing again. We've got we had our, our best asset raise in the second quarter of 2020. It was our best asset raise since 2016. And so I'm optimistic about that. And who knows, maybe three, five years down the road, I could look at something in the public service sector again. I don't want to rule anything out is basically the message. Well, and what I want to say about that is that, you know, you're one of the only few people, not, not just that I know, but you're probably one of the only few people, you know, of the very few, you know, 0.1%, if you're going to do it, you're one of the only guys who, who will be able to pull this off because of, like you said earlier, the resilience. Um, what principles and ethics do you uphold and do you, and do you live by? Well, I mean, listen, I mean, I don't want to sound sanctimonious because I, I and I got, I got done saying, you know, people make mistakes. They make ethical mistakes and make moral misjudgments. And so I don't want to stand at a bully pulpit and evangelically say certain things. I think what I would rather say is if you've made a mistake or you're in the process of making a mistake, try to fix it. Try to make yourself better. Try to improve. You know, I, I wake up in the morning and say, okay, is this good for my family? Am I doing the right thing for my clients? If this is something on the front page of the New York Times, the China Morning Post, or the Wall Street Journal, is it something I'm comfortable with? Is it something that I feel good about? Uh, and then 
you know, that's, that's sort of like where I'm coming from, from a principle basis. The other thing is, uh, I do believe in karma. And so if you're working with me, I want to make sure you're well taken care of. I want to make sure that we've got the right benefits for you. If for some reason I have to lay people off, which has happened from time to time, I want to make sure I'm helping people find jobs and giving them enough runway from a salary perspective where they don't feel financially insecure. And I think that, uh, you know, listen, I get up in the morning and I try to do the right thing. And I, you know, I got raised in a Christian family. I'm a Roman Catholic. Uh, I'm born in 1964. So I'm still a little bit old school in the sense that I, you know, believe in the church and I have faith, Catholic uh, Christian faith. And so I'm guided by a lot of the, the church principles. But the flip side of it is I'm not sanctimonious about it or righteous about it, where I respect other religions and I respect other ways of life. And, uh, but I want people to respect my way of life. You know, that's sort of that libertarian element of it as well. So, so to me, I think it's about actions every day. Uh, you can build a great legacy for yourself and you can get people to trust you and you can get people to think that you're a man or woman of good character. Thank you, Anthony. You know, the interesting thing is all my, all my North American friends are telling me, don't ask American guys about religion, don't ask American guys about politics, and you're the only person who talks openly about both. So thanks for that. Um, yeah, but that, that creates a lot of polarity, as you know, that makes people, you know, either like or dislike you. I think that's the last thing I'd like to say to all your young people. What other people think about you is none of your business. I learned long ago, Try not to worry about what other people think about you. Just go do your life. You'll be a lot happier. And you'll stay fit. You'll stay younger. So Anthony, what, what, what social impact projects are you looking at? You, you told, told us earlier that you're sort of like, you know, the third stage of life is the elder statesman. Is there anything different yeah. you're doing now than before? Well, I mean, I mean I'm, I've got a lot of different charities that I work on. I'm doing something right now for Cooley's Anemia. Uh, there's many of my friends uh, have children that have been affected by that disease. I have been on the board of directors of the Brain Tumor Foundation here in New York. My father was successfully operated on almost 20 years ago for a brain tumor, which thank God uh, they were able to save his life. And so I've, 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 most of my charitable giving is in health and uh, what I would say human safety. You know, I've given money to uh police officers and their families where people have been killed in, in, in the line of duty. You mentioned the Navy SEALs. If you come to my office, you know, they, they sent me a very nice plaque. I try to give to them uh, uh, to support them and their families because obviously they're in high stress jobs with many casualties. But most of my charitable giving is on the, uh, on the health issues uh, and health issues that are relevant to me and my family, I would say. Um, but I do spend a lot of time, you know, giving lectures. I go to a lot of different universities, high schools, uh, talk to people. And uh, I like that aspect of my life. And I have, as you know, because you've been in my office, I have a lot of young people that work for me. We have a large summer program. And I believe in the process of mentoring. I think it's a very positive thing to do. Uh, and you don't necessarily know how it's going to come back to you. But trust me, it does. It always comes back to you. Just before I ask a few like personal, like motivational stuff, I want to ask you about AI, artificial intelligence. So, you know, obviously technology over the last 100, 200 years has changed our lives. We're probably in the luckiest era of human history. 
what, what, what is your view on AI? Is it like Elon Musk kind of like it's the end of the world help or AI is, you know, completely good for humanity? Well, I mean, you've met my son, AJ, who just graduated from Stanford Business School. He's very good friends with Kai-Fu Lee, yes. uh, who's, uh, you know, worked at Google, is now on an AI project in China. I believe he's living in Beijing. Yes. Um, I, I would say to you that I'm probably not the expert on AI in terms of, you know, its application and how it works. But if, if you're saying, am I worried about a dystopian outcome or will it be more utopian, meaning will it be more positive for the world? I'm in the latter category. I think it'll be more positive for the world. And I think that uh, there are steps in learning, machine learning that will help us in science, will help us in investing, will help us in navigation, logistics, make our lives more energy efficient, uh, be better for the environment. I think there are so many different things. And when I think out over the next 50 to 100 years, that will be positively and in, positively impactful and benefited from AI. You know, the darker notions of AI, I believe could be checked. The same way the darker notions of man and womankind could be checked. And at my wine party in Davos, uh, which you attended last year, there were a couple of MIT engineers that came. And they came over to talk to me, we were talking about AI, and they asked me that question, that Elon Musk dystopian question. I said, well, you got to set it up. You got to set it up with checks and balances. You know, think about the American government, the constitutional system, the origination of America. They were trying to prevent a tyranny or an autocracy. And so they diffused the power. And so if you're in AI and you're worried about dystopia, uh, set it up so that there are checks and balances, you know. You can make more moral machines, if you, if you will, and you can have a system to protect the system from the other systems, if that makes any sense. And I think that uh, what you find about uh, our lives, and you look at best practices, uh, the best systems are, are the ones that allow people to live prosperously, they allow them to live healthy, and they allow them to treat, achieve some level or some arc of their their dreams and so when i step back and i think about that and i think about ai i think it, it fits in that picture excellent so anthony what is your life ethos my life ethos okay it's a very good question i mean you know i i probably have not really ever been asked that question so i have to probably articulate a little bit of that on the fly but uh uh i think you're born with a a spirit, right? Maybe, I don't know, Chinese astrology says there's like animal spirits or something like that. You're born <laughs> with a spirit. And so, you know, I would say to you that uh, my ethos, I can describe through adjectives probably. It's in, a lot of enthusiasm, uh, an amazing amount of love for the planet, uh, gratefulness that I had the opportunity to experience planet Earth, uh, luck. You know, I, I acknowledge how much luck there is in life. I mean, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family, but I grew up in a family that was wealthy in other ways that gave me the foundation necessary to go on and do a lot of the things that I've been successful doing or even not successful doing, just being able to ride those trials and tribulations. So I would say my ethos is helping other people. At the end of the day, I've tried to pick jobs uh, that would give me some financial comfort, frankly, because I know I have a lot of family members that need my help. 
you know, I've been in a negative subsidy with my parents since the age of 11, and I got to make sure that they're well taken care of in their elderly years. And so certainly needed to make enough money to, you know, pay for kids' tuitions and family members who have the ups and downs and vagaries of life. And so I'm at my best uh, when I'm helping other people. I, I feel my best when I'm, I'm helping people. That probably sounds cliche, but I really mean that, you know, and I, I get a lot of joy out of doing that. And so I guess that's what my inner ethos is, but it comes with a lot of passion and enthusiasm and frankly, a lot of love. You know, I'm, 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 I'm looking for the best in people, Patrick, not the worst. But the flip side is I'm a New Yorker and I grew up in a blue collar area. So, you know, I can pick up when people are being mean spirited. Okay. And I can take them lights out if I have to, but in general, I, I want to see the best in other people. Anthony, I, I know you as a person. I know that that's exactly what you do. You've, you've touched a lot of people's lives. Uh, moving on to the next question, legacy. What's, what's your views on you know, how are you planning to leave your mark in this world? Yeah. Well, you know, I have an interesting philosophical feeling about that. You know, I, I am less concerned about my legacy and I'm more concerned about the moment. Meaning what I mean is the day-to-day -day living of trying to do the right thing. And uh, I tell my kids this, you know, it's going to be 10,000 years from now. Uh, and I'll take you back 10,000 or 8,000 years ago. Maybe there are some famous people uh, in the Chinese cultural history. We certainly know about the pyramids of Giza from eight or 9,000 years ago, but we know of very few people from that era. We don't remember. And that is the human equation that we are living these ephemeral lives and why we wanna have a legacy. Uh, if you're thinking about time as a continuum and this piece of time is a very short period of time, I would be more focused in the moment and doing the right thing as opposed to how I'm gonna be remembered. I'll let, I'll let history take care of that. Uh, but what I tell my kids is there's only gonna be one person remembered from 1850 to probably like 2350. That four or 500 year period of time, there'll be one person remembered from this era and only one. And it's not, by the way, Donald Trump, Chairman Mao, Abraham Lincoln, they're not gonna be remembered. Remember, it's 10,000 years from today. There'll be one person that will be remembered. Who is that, Patrick? Jesus. No, but remember, he was born 2,000 years ago. So from where, 1800? 18, 1850 to 2350. We're 10,000 years now, it's, it's 1250, or it's, know, it's Thomas 12, Bell. 000, it's 12,010 as opposed to 2010 or 12,020. Thomas one Bell. One person I'll be remembered is Neil Armstrong. And why will he be remembered? He will be remembered because he was the first human being to set foot on an extraterrestrial piece of land, planet, moon, whatever you want to call it. Everybody else, Nobody's going to remember. And trust me on that, because that's the way it works. I mean, you've heard of the pyramids of Kiosk, but you don't know who he is. You certainly don't know who his wife was or his son. And it's 10,000 years later, nobody cares. And so it is just so much better for you philosophically to live in the now and to try to do the right thing every day and let all that other stuff take care of itself. Very refreshing, Anthony. So, Anthony, what is the next big thing for... Anthony Scaramucci's journey? Well, I mean, I, I have to repair Skybridge. I think that's my biggest uh, mission right now. 
is to uh, figure out what we need to do better, how we can attract more access, make our families safer that work inside of Skybridge, make them feel more financially secure. Uh, you know, this was an unexpected, to your point, a black swan event, a hundred year sort of uh, earth strike, if you will. Uh, you know, there might be more of them. Uh, there's a great book I'd recommend everybody called Spillover. Uh, it was written by David Quammen in 2012. It just talks about how uh, a billion humans on planet Earth were not encroaching on the animal kingdom. Seven billion humans on planet Earth were pushing ourselves into parts of the natural world uh, where you're going to see zootropic transfer of viruses. You're going to see this sort of spillover effect of, of what's going on right now. And, uh, you know, the great irony of that, you do need one world and you need coordination among health organizations and governments to contain things like that. Remember, we're battling nature every day, you know, with our own personal health and our health of our families and stuff like that. But you're going to need a little bit more teamwork, if you will, uh, to combat these pandemics. Um, but, you know, my, my, my point being is we have one. I got to get through this. I think that's going to be a big thing. I don't know if that's a two, three, five year mission. You'll, you'll get uh, but, but, you know, once I'm, once I'm through that, uh, then I, like I said to you, that back half of my life, I want to focus on making a meaningful contribution that I think based on my life experience, I don't know if it's public service or teaching or uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what it will be. Uh, but I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm, I'm always looking forward to the future. I always have uh, this excitement about what is coming and the people I can meet and the experiences that I can have. But my first order of priorities right now professionally is to get us through this uh, setback that we're experiencing right now. Not as related to anything as possible, but in this time that I've known you and I've listened to all your interviews over the weekend just to do this interview, and you have this memory, you seem to remember every single date, name, you seem to be able to quote all these books. What's, what's this like uh, memory that you have? Well, I think you're blessed with that, right? I mean, like, you know, you're, I think that, that was one of my blessings in life. You know, I, from an early age, I had a gift of retention. And so, uh, you know, some of it is repetition, you know, as they say, cliche, the repetition is the mother of memory, but some of it is just, for whatever reason, I can study something or I can assimilate information. I think more important, uh, if you really want to add analytical value, is to provide context and to provide a understanding of what you're reading, not just a recitation of what you've read, but like, okay, I see how that went down at that period of time in history and how cult culturally we were different. I mean, there's a amazing book right now that I'm reading by Fred Kaplan called The Bomb. And it's about the atomic bomb. And it's about the what went into the Manhattan Project and the competition and the how the bomb was stolen and how it proliferated, but also what our, our fears were in the 60s and 70s and 80s and how those fears abated when the Berlin Wall came down, but why we actually still should be fearful because there's a lot of nuclear proliferation. And thank God a bomb has not been used on planet earth in 75 or so years. Uh, but you know, we, you know, we still are living with the bomb, you know, and uh, I, I was reading that book over the weekend. I was just thinking about the historical context of those times compared to today and our enemy, Patrick, uh, you know, we, we had the boogeyman in the United States. It was communist Russia. We we're going to team up with communist China to thwart communist Russia. 
we had a big, big boogeyman. But as we've decentralized and we've become more interconnected like Zoom and other things, our boogeyman is actually ourselves. And what we have to do is we have to figure out a way to break down the concepts of state, break down the concepts of uh, the culture and focus on our individuality and bringing ourselves together. It's just interesting. Uh, the atomic bomb uh, originated after or because of the Second World War, uh, but we were in a very status-like time in geopolitics. And so I'm wondering if we're going to make that transition away from that now. So I think you can remember things, but you have to apply context as well. I think that's really where, uh, where, where younger people can benefit from those ideas. Absolutely. I mean, now in, you know, young people, very different to when we grew up is, you know, information is vast now. It's about the, the skill nowadays is the internet's full of data. It's all about finding the right data and applying it. So Anthony, the final question we ask all our guests is what is your number one advice that you would share with our audience, especially our, our younger guys? So I always think about this. So you got to listen to me on this one. I, I saw on somebody's desk maybe 15 years ago, uh, and, and, and basically the recitation was, what would you do with your life if you knew with 100% certainty you were going to get the outcome that you desired? And it's a very fascinating question. It's about you know your essence, your ethos, what would you do with your life? Meaning if you want to be an actress, but you know, your parents are telling you no, or you want to be a politician, but you're afraid of failure, or you want to be an entrepreneur, but you've got a great salary at Goldman Sachs and why give that up? You know, what would you do with your life? And what I would tell younger people, and I really hope that they would listen, is take more risk, uh, be less fearful, be less self-conscious about what other people think of you, uh, and, and zone into what is inside you. What was that thing that you did at age 13 that you really loved? You know, I have a, a child, you know, 20 years old. Uh, he's named Anthony. Uh, and he's living in L.A. right now. He dropped out of college. And he is a videographer. And he's done a music video with Machine Gun Kelly and a few of these wow. other very well-known artists. And now he's graduating into commercials. And his next move is he wants to be a film director. And he's autodidactically training himself. And maybe he'll go back to film school. Maybe he will not. But this is a dream that he has had his entire life. And so I tell young people, in the immortal words of the American comedian Mel Brooks, relax. N none of us are getting out of here alive. Okay, so just relax. Try to enjoy your life and find that passion that's inside you to do. And so, you know, one of my colleagues is a pretty straight-laced person. It's like, wow, you know, your son dropped out of college. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess he was trying to imply to me that that was bad status for me. And I was like laughing. I was like, well, actually, he's doing something that he really wants to do. He could fall on his ass. I'm very proud of him. I'm not embarrassed of it at all. I think it's a wonderful thing for him. And I think I, my message to younger people is do that with your life. Take that risk, okay? Because when you get older, you'll be reflecting on your life. You're like, was I bold enough? You know, and Virgil, Virgil wrote a great line, and uh, I can only translate it into English from Latin, but it fortune favors the bold. You know, he wrote that in the Aeneid. We were talking about Aeneas and the discovery of Rome. 
uh, and the, uh, you know, the, that great book uh, that was written during the time of Augustus, Fortune Favors the Bold. And that's my message to young people out there right now. Anthony, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining us and, you know, appreciate it and hope to see you in New York, LA, Abu Dhabi, or wherever the hell we're going to be. Good luck. Good luck with this, Patrick. I wish you guys the best. Thank you. Anything is possible. All right. Amen.